Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Rodkey, author of the new book, Lights Out and Lincolnwood. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Lights Out and Lincolnwood, how would you describe the novel? Well, it's a it's a dark comedy that follows a family of four in an upscale New Jersey suburb over the course of three days after the entire technological infrastructure of modern society mysteriously collapses on a random Tuesday. So, <laughs> you know, every everything that's electronic, phones, laptops, TVs, the power grid, any car manufactured after about 1975, they all just stop working. No explanation. And, uh, you know, and things go to hell pretty fast, but within a day, the local Whole Foods is getting looted. Uh, by day two, all the soccer dens and town start a militia. And, and in the context of the story, nobody can figure out because the, this loss of technology has taken away their access to news. If this is a temporary situation, in which case it's just an enormous pain in the neck or something more permanent, in which case they're, you know, potentially looking at the collapse of civilization. And, the, and, and so the, the psychological disconnect and the, the place where a lot of the humor comes from is, you know, when the story opens, the, the four primary characters, you know, husband and wife, two teenage kids, they're all dealing with various personal problems. Like, you know, the kind of problems that occupy us mostly. Based job stresses, substance abuse issues, college applications, peer group conflicts. And, and the thing that they have to wrestle with as, you know, when the lights go out is this question of like, at what point do I stop worrying about like, the work deadline my jackass boss gave me and start focusing my attention on where we're going to find clean drinking. Uh, so that's the kind of, you know, that's both the fun and the terror uh, that are mixed up. Gotcha. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Lights Out in Lincolnwood? Yeah, it started, uh, it all kind of grew out of, of hurricane scene back in 2012. Uh, I live in uh in lower manhattan uh on the, the 10th floor of an apartment building with my uh with my wife and at that time we had three kids who were 12 10 and 7 and we lost power and water for about five days after sea which you know for like for a lot of people i shouldn't say like hurricane sandy was catastrophic for us it was really it was more on the just you know huge pain in the neck like a week-long snow day kind of level but uh because we, we not only lost power, but water too, we, we very quickly got reduced to like, I, I would almost call it like urban forage to survive. <laughs> we had to, um, like every morning, the, the superintendent in our building had busted open one of the street hydrants and filled uh, a big trash barrel with water. And so every morning I would go down with a bucket and I, I would haul up enough water up 10 flights of stairs to flush the toilet. And then... Once, you know, once we take care of that, we, we gather up the kids and we would arch them and get like 20 blocks north to the, the part of Manhattan where power was still on because it was this weird kind of, you know, dichotomy where a big chunk of the city did not lose power at all. And so we would march them up there. We would like feed them, you know, sandwiches in a deli. And then we would try to find, you know, who are the friends who we can sponge on today, off today and like, you know, <laughs> go to their house and get a shower and, and charge our phones. And then we had to get back home. It was almost like Omega Band where we had to get home before sunset because there was no, there were no street lights and, you know, and, and we also needed to cook dinner before the, before the sun went down. Cause we, we did have, because of, uh, the sort of residual effects of nine 11, which we'd also been through 10 years before that we, we, we actually did have enough drinking water. That was like the one thing we had stockpiled that and like completely useless, like plastic tarps and duct tape 
sort of result of some weird homeland security orange two thousand two. But um but we you know we we so we had the drinking water but we you know all we had to eat was like boxes of pasta and that we could still boil it on the stove because the, the gas was the one thing that did still work. But once the once the sun went down we couldn't see anything. We only had about like I think we had we had what two working flashlights and we're just you know terrified that, that we would, would run the batteries down. So so we would, you know, we, we tried to be finished eating and, and just go to bed at seven o'clock because there was nothing else. And anyway, so this is a very sort of, it was an experience that was like, we never felt like we were in a danger. It wasn't terribly traumatic, but throughout it, I just, and for the years after that, I just kept thinking like, what if this went on longer or was more widespread? Like, what if we couldn't just walk 20 blocks to our friend's house? And, and, you know, in that sense of kind of helplessness in the face of modern technology, where we've just outsourced all of our basic needs to these very complex systems that don't have any control. That was the thing that really, that really kind of motivated the story. I wanted to explore that in a, in, in a fictional Well, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first novel for adults. How did you decide to make the switch from uh, kids' novels to riding lights out in Lincolnwood. Well, this was sort of, um, it's almost like my, my third or fourth career reinvention as a writer. Like when I, when I first got started, uh, professionally in my, in my early twenties, what I really wanted to be, and, and I've kind of always fundamentally been a cop. I, I, I wanted to be a political satirist. Um, but the thing about that is it's not really a job. Like <laughs> there was after a couple of years of like, you know, submitting you know pieces to like magazines you know, you'd have to submit to 10 places and finally somebody would would buy it and you'd get 250 bucks for it. i realized like you know the number of people who had the, the job title political satirist in america at that time get in the 90s you could count them on less than one hand and uh and so i realized that we kind of needed to do something else and i started writing screenplays uh and i became i was a professional screenwriter for about 10 I wrote about 25 screenplays of which, uh, you know, 21 never got made to movies. And the other four wound up being family films. Uh, there was a movie called Daddy Daycare uh, with Eddie Murphy, a Robin Williams movie called RV, uh, and a couple others. And, and, which was, and it was weird because I had, um, I never really set out to write family films or children's movies. I'm just... They just have the, you know, they happen to be the ones that got made out of all the ones. That. And, uh, and then after doing that for about 10 years, the film business, this is now like the late two thousands was, was changing in ways where I felt like I can maybe pull, you know, I can maybe keep this going for a few more years, but I'm not going to be able to keep this going for another decade. Uh, cause the business was just changing in ways that like they weren't making kind of movies that I wrote. So I started, but I, I was like, well, I'm a comedy writer. What else can I do? And I, and I'd never written a book before, but it was very, I, I, I'd grown up and that was kind of what I wanted to do when I was, thought of myself as somebody books. And but the thing I noticed was like most books that are, most comedies like don't play that well as books. Like for whatever reason, that's just a hard sell for adult novels. But in mm-hmm. the kids department, everything was comedy, not everything, but like half the, half the books. So I started writing. I thought, well, that maybe that's of my time and i so i started doing that i've now written about 10 children's books um but uh you know in the course of doing that there were kind of 
there were sort of limitations to what subject matter that you can do kind of limited to writing about characters who are 12 years and younger. And, uh, and after doing that for a while, I also got to a point where, um, you know, I was having some success at it and I was enjoying it on some level, but I had never really done what I really wanted to do, which was to write a novel for adults. And I thought to myself at one point a few years ago, I was like, well, if I only had one book left to write, what would that book? And that turned out to be Lights Out. So that's, that is the extremely long answer to a very short, simple question. <laughs> um, well, have that's you, how, have that's you, how I remember it. <laughs> well, well, given the, given the timing of, uh, book publishing, I'm curious, um, uh, are you thinking ahead and are you planning on to write or have you written a second novel for adults at this point? I haven't yet. The, the most of the time I've spent, uh, since I, since I finished Lights Out and Wickenwood. And by the way, I should say, like, this is a, it's a novel that I wrote almost entirely in 2019. Um, and in the, in the year and a half since then, it's turned into like a current events bingo card, which, you know, like last June, you know, during otherwise peaceful protests, like my neighborhood got looted, in, you know, in a manner that felt a little kind of like the thing that takes place in the book. Um, you know, January 6th comes along and the sort of, you know, the, the armed, you know, suburban white guys who, you know, become a source of menace in the book or suddenly storing the Capitol. And then a month after that, you know, the, the Texas power of water outages were like super on the nose for what happens. And, uh, and that was kind of, that's been, but, uh, but in the, in the time since then, I, so I finished the book in 2019. And since then I've written, uh, two books in it a children's series uh, that I, I'm co-writing sort of with and for Kevin Hart, the actor. Mm-hmm. And, and I also wrote a screenplay adaptation of one of my last children's books, which is called Word Up uh, about a family of humans. And um, so that's sort of what's occupied my time. I'm, I'm only just now, as Lincolnwood is starting to come out, I'm only just now thinking about what the next book for adults. Well, as you've talked about, you started out uh, your writing career as a screenplay writer, and you just mentioned you worked on a, a screenplay recently for for one of your recent children's books. I know that screenplays tend to be um, very structured, and I'm curious, when you are working on a novel, do you kind of carry that over in terms of outlining and planning before you uh, write the novel? Oh, yeah, complete. Um, and I mean, it's and I, I, like it. It's been enormously helpful to have had that kind of, uh, that practice of screenwriting, which is a very, very structural kind of, it's almost, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the structural rules and you can occasionally break the rules parallel of screenwriting. It's, it's almost like haiku in the sense of, you know, a good screenplay will have, you know, very sort of relatively clearly delineated act breaks and it will all kind of proceed in a way. Uh, where, where the, the plot is really foremost. And that, that's like, it was, it was really, really helpful when I started writing books. And I haven't really changed my process at all, which is to just, you know, I start with an idea and I take notes until that sort of coalesces outline. And then I just keep adding to the outline until I get to a point where, you know, I almost kind of, there's a weird sort of itch that I'll, I'll get at some point where I just, like, it's enough outline. You just need to write it. But by the time I start writing, I usually have like, like I know the beginning and the end of the story, whether it's a book or a story. So that was enormous helpful training. 
Sure. And I'm curious, what is your collaboration process like with the Kevin Hart novels that you're writing? Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Well, it's been, um, he's been, he's been great to work with. Like I can't, you know, all the, with all the sort of, and I don't know if I, if he's my collaborator or my boss, but I think it's, it's a little, you know, it's a little above, but, uh, he, he, he's fantastic on both. Ends. And, um, and, and really like the hardest working person. So, uh, we, we, we would sit together, you know, he, like, cause he originally, the idea, he came to me with kind of half an idea and, you know, and I kind of fleshed it out and, um, and we sat and we talked with each other. Uh, both in person and on the phone, uh, you know, t- until we really worked out the, sort of that, the whole out of everything that would be the shooting of the book. And then, and then it was sort of my job to convert, you know, the outline in, in, into a book. So, uh, so a lot of the actual, you know, the sentence by sentence writing, uh, was I, I would do it and then I would send it off to him and that he would look it over, and make his changes. Um, but, uh, you know, but the, but the, the, the larger structural stuff was very much, you know, kind of the two of us together. Work. Gotcha. Uh, and it, it's worked out pretty well. Done. We just finished the second book and, uh, hopefully there are more because it's, it's been really fun. It's a whole work process. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I think, you know, fundamentally, like, write the story that you want to see in the world. Like, like if you're writing a book, like, you know, think like, what's, what's the book that if I saw it in a bookstore, I would be like, oh my God, yes, I really want to read it. And, the, and, and then write that. And, and that's something, you know, Lights Out in Lincolnwood is very much that kind of a story. But I would say over the course of, you know, 25 year career, that I haven't always done that. There have been times when, you know, I, I was especially in, in mostly in, in film business, but I was, I was writing the stuff that the, the market was more, was kind of dictating. It wasn't exactly what I would have written if, if it was just me trying to satisfy me. And that stuff always makes me just feel worse in the process. <laughs> and then the end of the results, you know, even if it's commercially successful, it's just something about it that it's not quite, 
it's not quite as pure. So I, I would really focus, try, try to not think too much about, about a, you know, a, a market and just try to really write the thing that's going to make you happy, um, whether it gets published or not. And then the other thing is like, it's, uh, the hardest part is getting started. And I, I think that's true, like on a global level, in terms of like just having the courage to, you know, to, to try to write a story in the first place, but also on just sort of the micro level of like, you know, getting up and going to work in the morning, the, the hardest part of my day is the first five minutes, because there's just, there's, even if it's something I'm excited to work on, there's always this resistance of like, you know, maybe I should have a snack or like, you know, is there, <laughs> is there, should I, you know, let me just, I'm just going to spend five more minutes looking at Twitter and it's just, and that kind of, there's, there's something about it. I don't know what it is about writing, but it's, there's this natural, I have this natural resistance to it, but if I can make myself, you know, close my web browser, literally like write a sentence, usually like all of a sudden it's like two hours later and, you know, and the time has gone by and it's gotten a lot easier, but it's, yeah, it's just, you know, if you're having trouble getting started, just everybody has trouble getting started and just kind of, if you can just write a sentence, the rest of the, the other sentences are going to get a lot easier. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books or even movies that you've seen that uh, you've either, either read or watched lately that you enjoyed and that you would mention? Uh, so the ones, um, issues, uh, which I, I, I picked up on an airplane and like, yeah, I think I read it, it was a cross country flight. I think I read it for six hours straight until I finished it. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, and I just started, uh, Elif Batuman's Idiot, uh, which is a, it's a comedy about a first generation immigrant college student. that has got this really, it's got a very specific and just really awesome sort of, sort of comedic tone of voice. I really enjoyed that. Uh, in terms of nonfiction, um, there's a there's a book I'm slowly making my way through on my nightstand called The Republic for Which It Stands, uh, which is by I think it's by a guy named Richard White, and it's it's part of the the Oxford history of the United States, and it's 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 about the the United States for the period immediately after the Civil War through the end of the Gilded Age, and um, it's been oddly hopeful reading that because as like it, it as you know, as depressing as it can be reading the news, like when you, when you read about American, you know, American history going back 150 years, it's always been screwed up and we've somehow, <laughs> we've somehow gotten through it. So it's, you know, that's, and particularly like, you know, I just finished the section about like boss tweens, New York City and the, the level of corruption is just steady. So it's, you know, as I, as I, as I look at surf, you know, New York City politics right now, I'm like, it used to be so much worse. So, so that's, uh, that makes me oddly hopeful for the future. You're right. I've, I've actually commented several times. And, and of course, I mean, we all live through Trump, but I've commented several times that, uh, almost never in conversations about Trump, did you ever hear anything about Huey Long? Um, and he was very, very similar. Oh um, yeah. He, he was a, he was a populist and really said like, I'm for the working man. And meanwhile, he was beyond corrupt nothing came in or left louisiana without him getting a dollar in his pocket oh yeah yeah and it's a very you know it's a it is a very (laughs) common political figure going back you know going back all the way to the Roman republic thousands of years it's like the more you know about history the more you you do see that might not completely repeat itself but it totally drives like right 
Yeah. So, so where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel Lights Out in Lincolnwood and your various kids' novels as well? So there's, uh, I have a website, jeffrodkey.com. It's, by the way, it's spelled G-E-O-F-F for reasons that I, my Midwestern parents have never been able to explain satisfaction. <laughs> but uh, it's jeffrodkey.com, which uh, there's not a ton of information on it except on the About page, which has a good sort of reverse chronological history of, um, of my career. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram under Jeff Rodkey. And, uh, they could always, um, can always email me. There's a contact page on the website too. Very happy to uh, answer emails. So. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jeff Rodkey, author of the new book, Lights Out in Lincolnwood. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Jeff, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jeff. Great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audio book, of Lights Out in Lincolnwood by Jeff Rodkey, performed by Allison Ryan, Fred Berman, Jesse Valinsky, and Mark Sanderlin, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. We're out of yogurt. It was less a statement than an accusation, which Dan delivered in a tone of wounded sorrow as he stared into the open refrigerator. Its top shelf, where the big tubs of Greek yogurt usually sat, was desolate, except for some leftover olives in a plastic Whole Foods tub and that two-year-old jar of pineapple salsa he'd bought by accident and couldn't bring himself to throw out, even though nobody in the house wanted anything to do with the salsa defiled by fruit. The target of his accusation wasn't listening. Jen sat at the kitchen table in front of a mug of coffee, wearing the Michigan t-shirt she'd slept in and staring dead-eyed at her phone. On its screen was a chunk of text from an article in the nutrition and fitness section of the New York Times app titled, How to Stop Yourself from Crying. Upon seeing the headline as she scrolled, Jen's initial reaction had been amused contempt, When did the Times start running articles that Women's Day rejected? But that had quickly given way to a second, much less cynical thought. Maybe this could help. Unfortunately, three paragraphs in, she'd realized the article was pitched exclusively to readers who didn't want to quit crying so much as they just wanted to quit doing it in front of other people. Jen did her crying alone usually in the upstairs bathroom on school days when nobody was home. And the Times apparently felt this was either not a problem at all or so grave as to be beyond its capacity to fix. It was hard to tell which. Either way, by the time Dan issued his yogurt indictment, she'd stopped even trying to read the article. Her eyes were still fixed on the screen, but her mind had wandered off to wrestle with the binary choice that had come to dominate her weekdays. Will I or won't I? No, not today. Well, maybe. No, Jesus. But didn't you go shopping yesterday? Having failed to engage his wife's attention through passive aggression, Dan was trying again, without the passive part this time. I thought you were going to... Jen? Jen! Finally, she turned her head from the phone. What? Why didn't you go shopping yesterday? 
I did. I got dinner. Dinner had been lasagna and sautéed spinach carried out from delectables, an overpriced gourmet place on Hawthorne Avenue that only sold prepared foods. She'd chosen it late Monday afternoon over more versatile shopping alternatives for a simple reason she didn't dare articulate to Dan. It was possible to drive to delectables and back by executing only right turns. Why didn't you get breakfast stuff? I was working. I put in a fresh direct order. I don't know why it hasn't come yet. Jen's laptop was on the table, halfway between her and Max. She moved her coffee mug to clear a path and dragged over the laptop. Before she opened the screen, she reached out and smacked her 14-year-old son's free hand. Max was wearing a pair of massive blue headphones that dwarfed his skull, making him look like some kind of cyborg monkey as he shoveled cereal into his mouth while watching a martial arts video on his phone. Its cracked screen lay flat beside the cereal bowl, little pinpoints of splashed milk speckling the image of a shirtless, steroid-swollen man in a mohawk who was conducting a tutorial on the mechanics of an elbow smash to the face. What? Max snapped. Quit staring at your screen. Jen scolded him as she clicked on the fresh direct link in her browser bar. You're staring at yours? I'm staring with a purpose. So am I. What his mother didn't know, because Max would have sooner cut off a finger than explain it to her, was that the elbow to the face video was no idle entertainment. It was source material in a research project with serious implications for his future. I think we should all stop staring at our screens, Dan declared. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.